Good afternoon, and thank you for coming to Books Sandwiched In. My name is Martha Gill. I'm with Friends of the Library. It's my very great pleasure today to introduce Alvin Nance, who is President and Chief Executive Officer of the Knoxville Community Development Corporation. He's going to discuss the American way of poverty, how the other half still lives. Please welcome Mr. Nance. Good afternoon, everyone. I know that some of the folks who are in the audience uh, do know who uh, Knoxville's Community Development Corporation is. Uh, some may not, so I, I would like to take a few moments to kind of give you a little bit of that background because I think that would help with the context of, of me reading this book. Uh, we are the Public Housing and Redevelopment Authority for the City of Knoxville. What that means is that we manage all of the public housing units for the City of Knoxville and Knox County. We administer approximately 3,800 public housing units for the city of Knoxville and Knox County. In addition to that, we also serve as the Section 8 provider of Section 8 vouchers for both the city of Knoxville and Knox County. We provide approximately 4,000 Section 8 vouchers for the city of Knoxville as, as well. But as the, as the housing authority for the city of Knoxville, we estimate that we're touching the lives of approximately 14 to 15,000 people on a daily basis when you look at the amount of housing that we provide for the city of Knoxville and Knox County. Our funding. We are a direct appropriation from the federal government. So we are not being funded by the city of Knoxville to run the public housing here. We're not being funded by the, the Knox County government to run the public housing here, nor are we being funded to run our Section 8 program. Those are direct federal appropriations that comes from the federal government. And, and I'll comment a little bit about that later on here as well, because, because in this book, the American Way of Poverty, it does talks about some of these uh, social programs that we have that, that are not sustainable right now, that are creating real challenges for our country. And we even see that uh, a little bit on the affordable housing side. So I can share with you some of those contexts of things that we've been working on to hopefully try to instill some changes into that system that will better serve people as we move along at this point in time. We operate about 16 different locations of our housing. We have family-style housing. We also have elderly housing, so we do have high-rises. So we, we are providing housing for our single individuals, and we're providing housing for families as well. So so when I got the call from Emily, she says, well, the, the friends of the library would like for you to read the book and, and come and speak about the book. And, and, and I said, well, you know, do I get to pick the book? And uh, she said, no, they're going to pick the book for you. I said, oh, well, that's not a good thing. <laughs> you know, cause I'm going to pick a little book like that <laughs> if, if I could. But uh, no, they gave me some great choices. And, and I chose the American Way of Poverty because I felt like it was an opportunity for me to read something that was really close to what I'm dealing with on a daily basis connect some of the dots between what I was reading in the book and what is happening within our community right now. Uh, the book was written by Sasha uh, Aborowski. Uh, it is The American Way of Poverty, How the Other Half Still Lives. And it was a very interesting book because, you know, I assume that most everyone understands some of the dynamics and challenges that exist in our economy 
that a lot of lower income and poor people are dealing with on a daily basis. But in reading this book, you begin to get this sense that, you know, there still is a lot of folks within our country that don't realize that we've got this level of poverty within our society that we typically don't see that we go past, that we somehow don't realize that they are there because they've been able to blend into the fabric of our societies and our communities so that we tend to overlook that a little bit. But in the book, uh, the, the author raised some things for me that, not necessarily challenges, but it really raised some things for me to begin to think about a little bit more as we look at where our country is today. Because what we're seeing in our society and what the Arthur talked about is, is that you've got individuals who are finding themselves now living at or below the level of poverty, and they're working every day. These are individuals who are working every day. And so in the book, the, the reason I chose this book, because it was talking about this new group of people that, that were coming to the, the security network that this federal government has provided, whether that was through food stamps or through health care services, through housing vouchers, or needing public assistance, because there was one event that occurred in their lives. And for many of these folks who are going through this challenge right now, that event started back in 2008 when the real estate market began to collapse. At that point, there was an enormous amount of predatory lending that had gone on at that time. I don't know if many of you may recall, there was this huge push that everybody should be a homeowner. You could get into a house with very minimal amount of money down. You had many of these individuals who, who because of either the collapse in the real estate market, find themselves underwater on their real estate. Now they got a house that they're paying a mortgage on that is, is higher than their praise value of the property is today. You're trying to make your mortgage payment at this point, and then someone loses their job. Now you can't make your mortgage payment. Or you're got to spend all your savings or you've got to use your credit cards. The book speaks about many, many, many Americans who tried to hold on for as long as they could through this particular situation. One of the other things that are pushing people over into poverty is health care. You've got this large class of working poor. We got people who want to work every day. You know, we speak about this country and we hear people say, oh, well, the country has lost its desire to work, that people don't want to work anymore. People do want to work. In this country, they do want to work. What they're having a problem with is finding jobs that will pay them a decent wage that would allow them to live in this country. That's the challenge for us right now is that people are working. You've got large employers like uh, Walmart, you know, who's a huge employer. Well, you know, Walmart employs an enormous amount of people, but they've made the, the conscious decision that they'd rather their employees go and take advantage of the Affordable Health Care Act as opposed to them providing health care insurance for their employees. They keep them in a position of where we make sure that you are full-time temps so that you don't have all of the benefits that you need to have. So that becomes a responsibility for us as taxpayers, that we now got to figure out how we help these individuals. Who So you're finding these folks who are working. The book speaks of numerous individuals who are working at Walmart and are struggling because they either got injured on the job or something of that nature, but now they're challenged because, one, they still got to work. But if they can't go to work, they lose what little bit of stipends that they've got. And in our system, most of the federal programs we have, with the exception of Medicaid, Medicare, and Social Security, are pretty much punitive type of 
programs. And, and what I mean here is, is that if you improve your lot in life, then your benefits go away. And so when we're trying to help people make this transition and move out of an environment that they found themselves in, you know, by them trying to work more, earn more money, improve their quality of life, we will quickly turn around and tell them, well, okay, well, listen, we're going to reduce this benefit you're getting. We're going to reduce this benefit you're getting. We're going to reduce this benefit you're getting. So now what little extra money you're making at this point in time, you did not find any movement in your lifestyle. You actually saw a decline in your lifestyle. So here was that punitive thing to where we're telling individuals that, hey, you're better off if you stay trapped within this environment you're in right now than to try to get out of that environment. The book speaks to not only the economic sides of the poverty issues that we're dealing with, it also talks about our community issues. It talks about the housing needs that we need to be thinking about at this point in time. It talks about how communities, many, many, many communities, because of this mortgage real estate collapse that occurred, we've got subdivisions, and some here in Knoxville, that have gone through some foreclosures. So where now you've got so many foreclosures that happen in those particular areas, the property values have declined, people begin to move out. And what you find is you find squatters who are living in most of these properties. Uh, in the book, it speaks about Detroit. Detroit is a real example that if you really want to kind of take a look out there and see how bad things have happened in, in the suburbia, Detroit is probably a better indication of what's happened in suburbia. You got large manufacturers of the automobile uh, industry who ended up reducing the amount of jobs they have. You get a bad economy, and now people cannot afford to stay in their homes. So they've got subdivisions and communities that are vacant, that's sitting vacant. They've tried a lot of efforts of bringing in nonprofits who come in and buy up a lot of the real estate. They put a program in place to help educate people, teach them carpentry, teach them how to work on their houses, how to rebuild their houses, to turn around and sell those back to those individuals who are in those programs, give them an opportunity to continue to work, to try to buy back the house, help them actually build escrows to save money to reduce the original mortgage. But they've able to, been able to go in and talk to banks about reducing the amount of those loan mortgages that they had through a concentrated effort. So so there's some small things that are happening that the book mentions that we'd like to see the federal government look at on a broader scale in trying to help people deal with some of the challenges that are happening within their lives. It speaks to the fact that what happens in some of our communities, and the reason I was talking about the Detroit situation, is that for some of our communities, it's not possible for people who live within those communities to move. It is their community. It is where they live. So when you begin to think about people having to move from one community to another, it, it, it's all about housing. You know, the, if my available housing is where I'm located at right now, and it works for me economically. I may want to move to a different community. I may want to move to a community that has, uh, you know, a better school system or less crime or, or more opportunity for employment. But if the housing stock is not there for me to afford I can't move to that community. So I find myself still living in a community where there's still some challenges. The book also speaks to the fact that regardless of how we talk about addressing this issue of poverty, there's not a silver bullet. There's not a one suggested way of looking at how we address poverty. What it did speak of is that there were a lot of various activities that were going on within our country that if there was a way of aligning some resources, 
and developing some political will, that there were some ways of doing some things that could be nationally done that, that could address some of the issues that we're dealing with with regards to poverty. But I think the challenge that is out there for that is that political will. I think the other things, I think we've got the technology, I think we've got the knowledge in this country, and we definitely have the resources within this country. The political will is where the real challenge is for us to address poverty in this country. I had one of those aha moments when I was reading the book. It spoke about the fact that back in the early 60s, uh, mid-60s, then a candidate uh, by the name of Richard Nixon who was running for office, actually campaigned on the fact that employers needed to provide health insurance coverage to their employees. That came out of a Republican. Uh, he was also looking at that time a program that could actually be what was known as a family plan, which was a, a small tax that would be assessed as part of your income tax that would go to fund some baseline income for every American that was in the country at that time. That didn't materialize, but through those efforts, we ended up getting to earn income tax credit that kind of kind of evolved out of that approach to where there was an opportunity to generate more money back to individuals who were working on a daily basis. But the, the aha moment for me was is that, that even with that process, Nixon uh, campaigning on that and even winning the presidency and, and telling people that he was going to look at doing that, that you had two other uh, Republican administrations that expanded, expanded the safety net that was put in place. I mean, under Reagan, we, we saw the approval of the low-income housing tax credit to that amendment that was made to the uh, tax code. Well, it was a way to get private money into affordable housing. So now you could issue these low-income housing tax credits that an individual or company like a KCDC could go and get and build affordable housing and commit to keeping rents at 60% or 70% below every year medium. And what an investor was receiving in return was that was a tax credit. They, they had an ability by investing into this particular uh, credit, by buying the credit. They're not buying into the property, but buying the tax credit. They were able to put private dollars into affordable housing development all across the country. So, again, another way of moving some of the wealth back in to support some of the needs of the lower income and the poor income people that are living within our community. You know, if you get right down to it, it's really talking about wealth redistribution. That's what the book is really talking about. I think when you begin to look at it, it's wealth redistribution because even the things that are being proposed and talked about in the book as ways of being able to create some baselines, whether that's for an educational fund, for lower-income people to help reduce the amount of student loan debt they're going to have to carry on the back end so that they can actually go out and find decent jobs. As you begin to talk about this thing on a national level, it's going to be hard. And I go back and think that, okay, in the 60s, if Nixon and them folks were struggling a little bit with trying to get this thing up off the ground and get it rolling, they didn't have this thing called the Tea Party. And the Tea Party actually says tax enough already. So when we talk about this wealth redistribution here, what these programs are going to look at is, is how do we shift some of this? One of the things that the book talked about was, should there be a transactional fee? All of the stock trading that goes on in this country. You know, that there's enormous amount of stock trades that happen in this country. There's all this money that's being made through the stock market. Should there be a transactional fee that's assessed on that, that then goes back in for the government to plow back into, whether that's food stamps or whether that's housing assistance or 
health care, whatever that may be, but it would be a way of sort of having a fund available so that the government can step in during these economic times when things are extremely bad. Our economy does pretty well when things are going well. But when things are going bad, that's when the safety nets that the federal government has don't work well. They still continue to function just like the economy is great. So people end up falling through cracks. People end up losing benefits. But we've got to, as a country, be able to convince wealthier individuals that, hey, this is the right thing to do. What we're seeing in our country and what the book speaks about is, is that the American dream is a little bit different animal for a lot of people in our country because it's not delivering for people who are working every day. The demand has gotten so great for public services across this country. But through our federal system, we, we've made it more complicated for you to get the service. <laughs> so in other words, you know, we've made it real tough that, yeah, demand is greater, but we've also made the requirements of getting the benefits and the service a lot greater. And, and believe me, I think we should have some ways of having checks and balance of what we're doing. But we also should be able to adjust systems that are not allowing people to take advantage of services that they are entitled to. We see that within our system, and, and Arthur speaks to that. says, okay, if you don't have the political will to go out and create some funding mechanisms to address some of this, then what you might ought to think about is how do you start to tweak some of these programs you've got in place so they're a little bit more functional, that they deliver a better service in bad times. They scale back in great times. If a lot of people are working, you don't need to give a lot of subsidy. When people are not working, give more subsidy. So, and, and being able to keep it at a federal level. The book does not speak very strongly about block granting funds to the states. The Arthur tends to think that that sometimes is not the most effective way uh, of getting resources to lower income individuals because block granting to a state, uh, you know, other issues can come up and other needs can come up uh, at the state level. And so you could see funds being diverted in that regard. So the Arthur does believe that it's still important that these safety net programs that are out there need to be federally run safety programs. It shouldn't be pushed down to the state level. But I think as we see uh, what's happening on the uh, political scene, there's quite a bit of that conversation to push that back down uh, to the state level. You know, you look at the expansion of our Medicare program through the uh, Affordable Care Act. That's a decision that a state had to make, that we want to expand that coverage to take on more people, knowing that I'm going to get the federal subsidy for a few years, but it does become the responsibility of the state after that after that particular point. So that's why I say that I think political will is the greatest thing that, that, that we've got to deal with to try to help us address poverty in this country. We, there, there are the tools to do that. There are some systems and programs that are out there already working. There are some resources that are available within this country, but they do need to be redirected. So I think that's the conversation we've got to be having as we begin to move forward into the future. How do we get people comfortable with having that conversation? Because political uh, candidates and, and elected officials right now are not comfortable with having that particular conversation. That, that, that's a tough conversation to have, and, and I can understand why. All right, questions? Why do you think it's so uncomfortable or hard to get that discussion started among elected officials? I, I, I think that the, the individuals who are funding campaigns today have the ability to drive the political agenda of a particular candidate. I think when you begin to talk about redistribution of wealth within this country, that's going to make uh, wealthy people uncomfortable. 
And I see uh, political PAC money that is out there that pushes candidates away from that agenda. Did the book speak to any effect of what the North American Free Trade Act did to uh, American jobs? It did not speak to the North American Free Trade Act in that regards, but but I, I think the book did speak to the fact uh, the idea that the president is proposing about uh, addressing the crumbling infrastructure that this country has. Uh, it does speak of trying to come back and generating jobs of that nature. Uh, the book does speak to the fact that when you've lost a lot of the steel jobs and automotive jobs that were the high-paying jobs that helped create the middle class for this country, once those jobs were lost, what we're finding is a lot of service jobs that are available but won't pay that wage. So what they think the next big generation is going to be is that how do we get those folks like the big box people like Walmart to be able to look at that? How do we get people who are now going to start talking about uh, green jobs, you know? And uh, it does speak of the fact that we must have jobs that pay a living wage. And, and to get those type of jobs, we've got to be close to manufacturing. I think it was either Burger King or McDonald's that it referenced in the book that, that if, if they decided to pay their employees $12 and I think 75 cent an hour, it would be less than 10 cent increase on the hamburger they sell. Less than 10 cent on the hamburger they sell to pay all of their employees $12.75 an hour. So, again, it's an opportunity out there. But the book also speaks to the fact that if you're that CEO of this company who decides, well, you know, I'm going to pay my employees more, even though my competitor, Mr. McDonald's over here, is not paying employees more, and I'm going to, you know, hold down a little bit on the prices of it so I don't pay my stockholders a bigger dividend. Well, the book, you speak to that, well, you got stockholders who sue the corporation and the CEO at that point in time to call you created a loss for me. You did not make the right decision. And the right decision was to yield a greater return to me as a stockholder. So I think that's one of your challenges that you got. I'm wondering what the author said about the job training. I recently read in the, I think in the local newspaper, in mm -hmm. the New York Times, that people go through job training and don't find opportunities. Yes. But I'm wondering what he commented on. Arthur did speak of that. He spoke of a couple of programs that, that were in place. Uh, again, I'll go back to Detroit. Detroit has a, a program that's called Focus Hope. It was a holistic type of approach to job training. In other words, if you got into the program, okay, well, you had to be there at a certain time. If you had a drug dependency, you had to make certain that you were clean. You know, you had to be drug tested. But at this place where you're also getting this skill set, it was a graduating effort. You know, you came in at this level, and if you proved that you were committed to this program, then they could move you to the next program. Well, when they got you to the next program level, they will expose you to the technology and equipment and the skill training you need to get a job in the automotive industry or to get a job at a company. They had partnerships with companies. They also would provide child care services on site. They had a food pantry on site. They built affordable housing that was around this facility. Because what they understood was is that the people that they were trying to work with had more challenges than not having a job. And I think that when, when we think about things in our country, we tend to think that, okay, if we address that particular issue for you, everything else is okay in your life. And it really is not, and that's what we are talking about a moment ago, is that if your community is not strong, your school system is not strong, 
and you're dealing with, you know, a lot of drug sales happening in or, or things that are bad within your community and you got to fight through that, then you have some more needs that you need to maybe get to that next level. And the Focus Hope program, there was not just about job training. It was about making certain they wrapped the other support services around that particular individual that they was getting the job training so that they can make certain that they move through the system, that they find good employment on the back end and not just come through the program. But, yeah, I think that uh, job training is still one of the things that we got to talk about as a country because there's going to be a shift to green jobs. So, again, I think those are going to be a couple of the areas we see in a few years. You did talk about Detroit. Yes. That's one of the uh, focal points that was things done. And usually when books are written, there is, like, uh, some concept about best practices. Yes. And I, my question is whether or not there were other examples of best practices in that book. Yeah, okay. yeah. That and worked. also maybe in terms of your position, I won't put you on the spot. <laughs> but in terms of your position, because you do work in the you know low yes. and moderate income housing mm-hmm. and all the rest, would mm-hmm. you be willing to engage in an ongoing conversation to actually develop a plan to create a sense of wealth? In the, in the uh, areas of poverty. Yes, we are. And, and I think that's the thing that we have come to uh, believe that we've got to be engaged in as the housing provider. And I think if we do what we're supposed to do as that housing provider, and then I've got someone doing that piece that they need to do on the transportation side, or, or we can have a training piece that we can partner up with, we're going to have to work collectively. You know, aligning your resources to address an issue. I'm right now trying to figure out, okay, how do we address an issue of uh, rebuilding some public housing? But we didn't just try to focus just narrowly on that. Uh, I've got public housing residents who, who tell me that, you know, the challenge for them is that they do work, but they don't have a bus route that gets them back home in a reasonable period of time that night. Or they got a bus route that lets them off five or six miles from where they live at. So that's a real challenge for someone. I mean, so we've got to continue to talk about that. And I know I'm having ongoing conversations with Kat about those particular issues because I know my residents make me aware of it. Mm-hmm. Thank you for talking today. Mm-hmm. My question, uh, and, and I guess it's related to this best practices thing that Emojit just brought up, mm-hmm. I really do support programs like SNAP, uh, first-time homebuyers, Section 8, mm-hmm. they, but, but they kind of seem like barriers to people getting help. Mm-hmm. in that you have to be qualified or you have to meet certain qualifications. And it really seems to prevent people from having the kind of mobility that allows them to, to make the sort of sorts of choices that they could improve right. their life with. Does the author talk about just giving people the money that they need and then letting them decide what to do with it? Is that discussed at all? Yes, one of the things that I have a little philosophical difference uh, with the Arthur on is the fact that when you talk about making monies available to individuals, but if, if that's not this educational type of piece, and I'll give you a good example. I, 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 mean, I mean, I grew up with a kid, there were six kids in my family, and I mean, my daddy knew nothing about dividends. My dad knew nothing about insurance, really. I mean, he was a working-class man. So, I mean, my knowledge of that, I had no knowledge of it. Well, I don't think you can just throw the money at it. I, I think having the money available makes good sense. But we've got to also have some education and, and some other support services around people so that they can really truly benefit from it. I mean, I got a 25-year-old son. I can tell you right now, if I gave him 50 grand, he wouldn't have 50 grand the next day. 
<laughs> All right. So this ain't about being poor. I'm going to just tell you. Okay. So, and I think y'all probably got some kids like that too, because my son hasn't had, I hadn't had a chance to educate him enough on understanding. It's not about spending, son. <laughs> it's about saying, so he's just not getting into the workforce. But, but my point was that unless we are giving people some help to go along with the money, then we hadn't solved the issue. We've only made the problem worse. They got the money, but they didn't do what they needed to do with the money. So it really didn't help them. Yes, I think there's some great best practices out there. I think we're doing some good things here in Knoxville. But I think we need to expand on them a little bit more. We need to add a little bit more to them. We need to make certain that people are getting the educational piece they need to be successful in the things that we want them to do. My observation goes back to what you were talking about uh, on the economic side of poverty and the Mm -hmm. community side and looking at what happened to the housing market in 2008. I don't think there's very many communities in Knoxville, city or county, that hasn't been affected by a foreclosure of some kind, one or two. My concern is who's the beneficiary of the property assessment if your property assessment is being based on the foreclosures in your subdivision, who comes out the winner? Well, they, they based on your experience. Well, based on my experience in a scenario like that, the only winner in that scenario is the person who decides to buy that real estate at a really reduced price. But. The community doesn't benefit because if I'm a homeowner, foreclosures are happening, and now I get an investor to come into this community, and now he buys that house for maybe 50 cents on the dollar. Well, that sets the value for my house. So I immediately lost value. So there's not a win. Well, the city's immediately lost because now if my property value go down, well, I'm surely going over there to the property assessor's office and say, hey, I need to pay less property taxes than what you're charging me. So now the city is going to lose. They're going to collect less property taxes. So that means less money to do roads, do sidewalks and things. So it does have a ripple effect in a negative way when property values uh, go down, uh, when foreclosures happen. Uh, it's not a good thing for the community as a whole. Now, can people benefit? I go back to the Detroit situation. When it's bad enough of that nature, they found a way to turn that thing around. Yeah, they were still buying the properties at a reduced price. They had to go back in and do the rehab work on those properties and fix them up. But what they did was they got people who were living in those homes. They said, hey, well, listen, we want to keep you in your house. We want to help you figure out how to work on that house, how we can get to. And, and, and they even went out and bought up blocks of houses of where they just rented them back to the people. And if they stayed in the program, they build escrows to where they could turn around and come back and buy the housing. The author speaks to the fact that he sees the government ought to do that, too. But then I kept saying, to him, well, what do you think public housing is? <laughs> we already do that. And I can tell you right now, we're challenged with the money we get for public housing right now. I've got employees who've been uh, employed at KCDC for better than 30 years. And over the last two and three years, we now run at almost 100% occupancy in all of our public housing units and all of our Section 8 program. i got people who've been employed for over 30 years who said this is the first time they've ever seen that. So, again, that's an indication of where our economy is going because that demand is that great here in Knoxville. We also are being appropriated from the federal government. We got a contract with the federal government that says we're supposed to be running these 3,800 public housing units for you. We're supposed to be issuing these 4,000 vouchers for you. But the government comes back and says, well, hey, we know that. But we can only afford to give you this much. So now we've got to figure out how we continue to deliver 
hundred housing units to people who need them because we had a hundred percent occupancy. We can't just turn around and say, well, okay, we didn't get enough money from the federal government, so some of y'all got to move. You can't. It puts it on some other resources. So as we look out there into our system, there's some challenges that are there. But I think what we're trying to do is continue to look at addressing those communities where we're located at right now, improve the property values in those particular areas. We've got to make sure that good public transportation is available. Got to make sure the school systems are good. But again, it's going to take a collective effort, not just one. Thanks for doing this today, and I haven't read the book yet, but I'm I'm looking forward to it. But one question I had, um, when we talk about affordable housing and the concentration of poverty, there are some communities that are starting to enact ordinances where if a developer comes in to put in a new development somewhere, a certain percentage of that development has to be affordable and mid-level housing to help economically integrate the neighborhood and the community schools in that area and how that's one way to keep from concentrating poverty. So I was just wondering if you had any thoughts about that. Well, you know, one of the interesting things that the art uh, talked about, and and back to this this real estate concept uh, there in Detroit, is that if they convinced an individual to come back in and say, okay, you're going to come back in, you're going to get this reduced house, you're going to work on it, you're going to fix it up, you're going to live in it, it's your house. You know, But if you decided that you wanted to, say, flip that house and sell it in five years or so, well, the agreement that they had with, with folks at that point in time was that you could flip it, but uh, you could only get 50% of the equity out of that deal. The remaining 50% had to be plowed back into that community. It had to go back into working on housing in that community or addressing some issue that was happening within that particular community. If you're working in a neighborhood, and I think we all know this, is that that neighborhood has to become self-sustaining. It cannot be a neighborhood that it, it, that you're going to continue to pump money into every year, every year, every year, every year. It's got to be able to grow. It's got to be able to come to some point being self-sustaining. But the book speaks to the fact that for some of these communities that are at the level they are today, we got to have some things like this program in Detroit to where, you know, you're pumping money back into that community that's directly geared for that community. So it's not going into the to the city budget and the city decides who it goes to. It was happening within that community, sort of like a co-op a little bit that they kind of had, you know, so where they could make decisions on, on property acquisitions and rehabs and, and sales and things of this nature. So it was a good concept. We got an excellent example here within our community. I think most people know that if you look at Fourth and Gill, <laughs> it turned out great. Thank you, Alan. When a large business or small business comes into an area and they're supported with tax dollars. Let's take the example of down in Chattanooga with uh, Volkswagen. 50% of their costs of movement Mm -hmm. is paid by us taxpayers. And they hired thousands of people. Now where did they come from? But let's take it with what you're doing, and I, I, don't, I don't want to put you on the spot. Okay? No, no, no. You're doing a lot of refurbishing and building right now. Mm-hmm. Do you know where, or do you require those contractors to look at where or who are they hiring? Are, are we looking at that to see if we're having any effect, and is there ways to structure these contracts and everything else has got to go with it. We've got to have the education. 
you know, mm-hmm. in this type of thing. He says that if you're going to be able to drive businesses back to your area, then part of that is the work population that is available for them in that particular area. I mean, and again, I go back to the Detroit situation. They had the ability to connect with companies that that said, okay, if you can bring us this trained employee at this level, then they had a commitment to hire. I don't think that we're at that level here, Jim, in, in Knoxville. I think you raise a very good point that when we've got an opportunity like a Volkswagen type of plant that comes in, that those are those opportunities for us to sit down and really negotiate what we want to get back for the citizens. But I think that, again, what I'm reading that, that is happening at the state level and the governor saying this, this drive to 55 to get people where they needed to be so that we can continue to attract these type of companies here. You, you know, there's still a Tennesseans that are getting the jobs, but I think that we got to figure out, you know, folks that are living in public housing, how do we get them there? Because like in Detroit, they weren't even relying on the uh, public transit. They were providing the transportation for these individuals who were within this training program. So they had a way. If they didn't provide them with transportation, they gave them bus vouchers. So in other words, they made sure that individuals did not have a barrier to get to the training and receive the benefits and the services. When we did the Hope 6 project in Mechanicsville, we partnered up with um, CAC on the Youth Bill grant that allowed us to bring the young people in to give them the carpentry skills and the uh, skills, and they built, uh, I want to think, three houses there in Mechanicsville as part of our Hope 6 project. Uh, the federal funding that we're receiving at this point in time, we're really trying to drive down the price of what we're getting these services for. So a lot of times when you've got a very large company who can drive the price down, then we're, we're awarding that so that we can actually carry that money farther. Those are some of the things that we've got to continue to talk about. Uh, how do you get an organization out there like a Focus Hope who is working on that piece in an area where we all are working to be, have those opportunities for people to have jobs. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. No, glad to be here. Thank you. Thank great you. Thank job. Thank you. Great Thank job. you. Thank you for listening to Book Sandwiched In, a lunchtime book discussion series sponsored by Knox County Public Library in Knoxville, Tennessee. To find other podcasts, please visit our website at knoxlib.org. Dot O-R-G.